Likely several of you know the name John Wimber. Wimber was born in the 1950s, lived a prolific life, ended up in the rock and roll industry, connected with an old group that some of us remember, the Righteous Brothers. Got into a lifestyle of drugs, lived kind of the Hollywood scene, quote unquote. And then he was miraculously saved by the grace of God and began attending church. And in attending church, he began to read the Bible, as new believers should do. And he was specifically reading the Gospels and hearing about the works of Jesus. And finally, after a period of time, he went up to his pastor after a worship service and said, so this is what I'm confused about. When do we get to do the stuff? And the pastor wasn't quite sure what he meant. And he said, I want to know when we get to do the stuff. Now, those of us who are pastors, we can be pretty dense from time to time, I confess. And like me often, that pastor wasn't quite sure what was being asked. And so he said, well, we do what the church does. And he says, no, no, no. When do we get to do the stuff like Jesus did? When are we going to raise the dead? When are we going to work miracles? When are we going to see the blind given their sight? When are we going to do the stuff? Wimber didn't really find what most of us would consider to be a satisfying biblical reply to that. He went on to found the churches we know as the Vineyard Churches, who have in many ways done a good work of gospel ministry, and yet were founded on that idea that we ought to still be doing the stuff. Perhaps a question like that has been in your mind, as in our church we've been working through 1 Corinthians. Because 1 Corinthians, quite frankly, if we're honest about it, describes a lot of the stuff, prophesyings and tongues and miracles and healings. This is a question that's been asked throughout church history in different forms and different contexts. The issue never quite goes away. Theoretically, on the broadest scale, it's the question, what is the role of miracles in the daily life of the Christian? As we've noted over the last several weeks and months, Paul's not really asking or addressing that question when he writes to the church in Corinth 2,000 years ago. It's not a question he's concerned about. And the reason was because he was writing in the apostolic age. That's what we call it. The age of the first churches. When after the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, the followers of Jesus, the disciples, called apostles because they were sent out as emissaries, they received empowerment to take that powerful message and spread it all over the then known world. That's the apostolic age. And during that time, Revelation was still being given. As we often say here, this is God's word for us today. Well, people in Corinth didn't bring their Bibles when they gathered together as the body of Christ. They, didn't, they weren't able to carry scrolls of the Old Testament. And quite frankly, the New Testament was in the process of being written. And so where did you find the word of God? Well, this was a season of miraculous revelation of inerrant truth in church gatherings. No different than when I read the inerrant Word of God now today, they heard the inerrant Word of God through gifts like apostleship, through the words of the prophets. By the way, those prophets were always evaluated because Jesus had warned about false prophets. And also through the speaking of tongues. And the reason tongues happened was because there might have been a foreigner present who couldn't understand the spoken language. And so 
that foreigner could understand the word of God spoken, but the rest of the church couldn't because it was to them a foreign language, and so there needed to be translation, as we've seen. Sometimes all of this was accompanied by miracles or by healings. And those miracles and healings, those signs and wonders, verified that this was indeed a new word from God. And so the question remains, what happened to all those wonders, all those miraculous revelations? In fact, what about from last week, 1 Corinthians 14, 38, which says, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. Quite honestly, this morning, we're asking the question, are we missing out? Or even worse, I take this seriously because I'm a shepherd. I will give an account, the Bible says. Are we being disobedient? Because in the normative practice of our worship services, in the in and out of doing church and living life together in 2023, we don't experience and see these kinds of signs and wonders. So are we missing out? Or are we being disobedient? And beyond that, practically, what is the role of grace gifts? What sometimes are called spiritual gifts. What is the role of grace gifts in our regular day-to-day lives? And for this morning, because I'm afraid some of you believe that we stay a little too theoretical around here, practically, how do we recognize and use those grace gifts? We're going to divert from 1 Corinthians, even though this sermon is really integral to our study in 1 Corinthians. We're going to go to 1 Peter this morning. Would you open your Bibles there? If you use a pew Bible, you'll find it on page 1296. I'd love for all of you to lay eyes upon this text. 1 Peter chapter 4. And one of the challenges we have, one commentator said it this way, it seems that we either veer between charismania an unbalanced and wild embrace of some kind of dramatic gifts, or we veer toward charisphobia, and that is being fearful of the work of the Holy Spirit. And those extremes, we recognize extremes sometimes in our own lives, and they surely have happened in church history. So we want to try to address these issues from the Word of God this morning, and a concise way to deal with it is found here in 1 Peter as Peter writes to churches, to believers that are scattered over the Roman Empire. And so look with me at 1 Peter chapter 4, and let's begin in verse number 7. 1 Peter 4, verse 7, and we'll read down to verse 11. And as we read, I remind you, this is God's word for us today. 1 Peter 4, verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that everything, in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. And Peter says, and we can say to that, amen. 
This is our text this morning, and in it we see Peter's instructions about the very same issues that we have found as we've worked our way through 1 Corinthians. And so some of this will be a review, and I'll go over it quickly this morning. And if you want to use your handout, you'll find these issues on the back page of the bulletin, but we'll also have them on the screen for you just to guide our thinking through. So the first thing I want you to see is Peter acknowledges what Peter, what Paul has already said several ways, several times to the Corinthians. And that is the fact that you each have a grace gift to be used for others' good. Each of us in the body of Christ, we have a gift that the Holy Spirit has given, or as we'll see later, a combination of gifts. And those gifts that God has given us are not to be used for ourselves, They're not to be used for our own pleasure. They're not to be used to impress others on our behalf, but they're to be used to minister to and serve others. You each have a grace gift to be used for others' good. Notice what it says in verse 10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. So what Peter does, Simon Peter, who, by the way, is also an apostle, We'll come back to that term in just a moment. Simon Peter, also an apostle like Paul, he emphasizes precisely the same priority that Paul does to the Corinthians. The reason the Holy Spirit has gifted us, has given us gifts of grace, grace gifts, the reason the Holy Spirit has gifted us in the church is that we might serve one another. The first Corinthians term that Paul uses is edification, that we might build one another up. But the point is unmistakable. And pardon me, but we've seen it over and over again over the last few weeks, for those of you who have been here. The goal of the gifts is not for our own pleasure, but the goal of the gifts is that we might use them in such a way that others are encouraged, are edified, are built up. You each have a grace gift to be used for others' good. The second thing we find in this text in 1 Peter 4 is that your grace gift will be one of two kinds of gifts. Peter just gives a broad summary as an apostle writing to these scattered believers, and he basically says, in a sense, you can categorize all of the grace gifts into two different categories. The first is a speaking gift. Your grace gift will be either a speaking gift or, as we'll see in a moment, a serving gift. The speaking gifts are the upfront giftings. Notice how he says it in verse 11. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God. That's how important it is. In the early church, it was literally the oracle of God. For me today, as I speak, believing that I have received a grace gift of teaching and of preaching, I have the privilege of doing that, but I should take care because I am representing God. I should be so sober, so serious, because I stand and speak for God. I claim to do so from His Word. And that's serious. And those of us who speak who use our grace gifts in speaking, we are also those like those who serve. We are those who are good stewards of God's varied grace. The idea of a steward is to be a, basically the way to think of it is a pipeline. We each are pipelines of God's grace. God is eager to give his supernatural help that is undeserved. That's what grace is. God is eager to give his supernatural help that is undeserved to people in their lives. And the way he does that is not so much drop that grace straight out of heaven, but he does it through the channel of our lives. That's the reason we are called stewards of God's varied grace, the different kinds of grace that God gives into others' lives. How will that grace show up? What's the Amazon delivery for that kind of grace? 
It's your life and my life in one another's lives. So your grace gift will either be a speaking gift, and in the New Testament we find speaking gifts like teaching, like exhortation, like leadership. Those are speaking gifts. They're kind of upfront. The other kind of gift is a serving gift, and you would call this, by contrast, a behind-the-scenes gifting, that which happens behind the scene. It's not so evident. It's not so prominent. Do you see it there? It's in verse 11, the last part of the verse. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. And in the New Testament, the book of Romans and also in the book of 1 Corinthians, these serving gifts include gifts like helps or ministries, gifts like giving, which is usually behind the scenes. In fact, Jesus implied it should always be behind the scenes. The, the, the help of, of mercy, mercy showing. There are some people who God has, through His Holy Spirit, given a grace gift that they are eager to come alongside people who are hurting and to demonstrate to them mercy and compassion, and through that to give encouragement. Those are serving gifts, behind-the-scenes giftings. Now, I won't take much time on this, but you need to be careful that you recognize that there are built-in dangers to both of these categories of gifts. Of course, you understand I struggle with this because all of us who have this gifting do. There's a danger, there's a, there's a pitfall in exercising our grace gifts, those of us who have speaking gifts. And you recognize that danger. It's a pride of performance. I mean, you all sit here and listen to me every week, astonishingly to me. And no one ever objects. By the way, that's appropriate that you never object. But there's a danger that that can produce within me a sense of pride, a sense of I have to perform, and then a sense of everyone look at me. There's also a built-in danger for the serving gifts. Because of the fact that they're behind the scenes, and because so much of the serving gifts involve sacrifice and serving, the built-in danger, the pitfall there, is an attitude of resentment or envy when you're not appreciated. And if you have a spiritual gift that is a serving gift, you know what I mean. Why do other people care about the things I care about? Why don't other people appreciate the way that I serve? Why don't other people acknowledge the things that I do? Why, do not, why don't other people show up on a work day the way I think everybody ought to show up on a work day? Those kinds of resentments, and sometimes envy as well, can be part and parcel of this issue. But your grace gift will, generally speaking, either be a speaking gift or it will be a serving gift. Now, unresolved in the New Testament, and therefore I don't have a great explanation of this, is the difference between natural talents and abilities and grace gifts. I believe that they function together. I believe that very often the natural ability that God designs into a person by His providence it parallels or energizes, or a better way to say it, the grace gift that God gives energizes a natural ability. The reason I believe that is because if God providentially gives me gifts by the Holy Spirit when I am saved to bless the church around me, He also has providentially, because He knows all things, He designed me from before, as my mom used to always say, before you were even thought of. He designed me with the abilities and gifts that I have. And so natural abilities and talents work alongside, sometimes parallel. In fact, I think sometimes look exactly like spiritual gifts. And if you spend too much time saying, well, wait a minute now, is this a, a natural ability or is this a spiritual gift? As we'll see before we're through, don't waste any time worrying about that. 
Because the point is we're to love one another, and as we'll see in a moment, we're to serve one another. And all of this is an indication of God's amazing providence. Now, here's the issue. You'll see it in the middle of your page there if you're following along in the notes. What about apostolic miraculous giftings? What about what we would call unusual gifts? What we would call supernatural gifts? What about the gifts of the apostles? Are they still active today? That's the question at hand. And I will do my best to give our understanding of that and the reasons behind it. I believe there are solid biblical reasons to say that the apostolic miraculous giftings of the Holy Spirit are not normative today and shouldn't be expected in a normal course of the Christian life. And we'll see that, I hope, at least my understanding of the evidence for that in the next few moments. But we should stop and just clarify the confusion that happens when we don't define our terms. Because we use the term miraculous. And what does a miracle mean? In fact, the New Testament term is often signs and wonders, and that carries over from the Greek uh, in the New Testament, carries over from the Hebrew in what we call the Old Testament, the idea of signs and wonders. These are the workings of God, listen very carefully, the workings of God that set aside natural laws. A miracle is not that you found a good parking place just off State Street. You may think it's a miracle, and we use that terminology, but God didn't change anything in nature to open up that parking spot. And we overuse the word miracle in ways that cheapen it. A miracle, a sign and wonder, is when something verifiable happens that changes the course of nature. And make no mistake, our God is the God of miracles. He authored nature. The Bible says he controls nature. The Bible says he is sovereign and can and will do anything he chooses to do. So if God wants to change the course of nature, he can and will do so. So when we use the term miracles, that's what we're talking about. The supernatural setting aside of nature's rules. And in history, what you find in scripture is that when those kinds of signs and wonders came on the scene, now think about this. We think back in Bible times and because of For some of us that went to Sunday school or vacation Bible school, we think there was a miracle happening around every corner. We think there was a miracle that happened every week. But what we find in Scripture is that's not really the case. But that during, the theologians use the term epics, during these seasons of biblical history, you have signs and miracles. And they did primarily two things. They authenticated God's true messenger And they also revealed and delivered and channeled God's true message. Those are the two things that signs and wonders and apostleship and prophecies and the word of God spoken even in tongues. What we find in the New Testament is that when God did that, he was essentially doing two things. He was giving his true message and at the same time he was authenticating his true messengers. That's what we find in what we call the apostolic church. And so they were rare, and they were truly miraculous. They were unmistakable. They were unambiguous. On the other hand, that supernatural working, we need to recognize this, that when we separate out apostolic miraculous signs as some kind of different category, we undersell the astonishing power of God in His regular, ordinary working. 
I've said this before, but let me say it again. Providence, the fact that God has ordained all things in such a way that he's accomplishing his purposes, I think is the most astonishing miracle of all. That you and I have our freedom. We are not compelled. We are not forced to do anything. And yet somehow the God of the universe is so sovereignly in control that in our freely unforced decisions, God accomplishes his eternal purposes. That's a miracle. That's providence. And even when I use my spiritual gift, it might not be miraculous in the sense that God changes nature, but it is surely supernatural because it is the working of the Holy Spirit. And that's what we find consistently in the New Testament, that God is willing to work in your life through your grace gifts. And when the Holy Spirit does that, it may not be miraculous. I suggest it is not miraculous in our day and age, but it is nevertheless the supernatural evidence of the Holy Spirit working in your life. So it is still supernatural. Now, give me just a few moments. Take your Bibles and let me show you some evidences, I think, for why those times, in the apostolic age especially, were unusual, specific, and distinct from our times. I will not give you, let's be honest this morning, I will not give you a slam dunk case that's not possible. But I believe this is a compelling case. In fact, I think it's overwhelming that what God was doing in the apostolic age had certain manifestations that he is not normatively doing today. And there's a reason we're working through all this. So hold on for just a few minutes if you're wondering, how does this apply to my life? I can show you that before we're through. First of all, look at the words of Jesus in Matthew 11, 4 through 5. You'll see it on the screen. This is when John the Baptist has been arrested and he he has questions about the nature of Jesus' ministry. He's concerned. He he has developed a level of doubt. And so he sends questions, messengers to Jesus and say, essentially, are you the Messiah or not? And listen to what Jesus says to him in Matthew 11, 4 through 5. And Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have the good news preached to them. Now, don't miss this. John was having doubts about Jesus, and Jesus was saying something new is happening. There's a new time frame that's arrived. There's a new epic that's begun. There's a new season that's here. The other language that Jesus consistently uses in his earthly ministry is the kingdom has come. And what did that look like? Well, it looked like blind receiving their sight, lame walking, lepers cleansed, deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. Those are signs and wonders that a new time is here. The apostles acknowledge this in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. When they were preaching in Acts 2, verse 22 and 23, they said this, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, look at it, a man attested to you by God with all with mighty works and with wonders and with signs that God did through him in your midst, this Jesus you crucified. The defining aspect of the coming of Messiah, the defining aspect was this astonishing array of signs and wonders. And it signified a new era. It signified a new epic. Now to show you that in Scripture... Please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2. 
And you'll see that the author of Hebrews says the same thing in Hebrews chapter 2, especially verses 3 and 4. We'll just begin in verse 3. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. If you're using a pew Bible, it's on page 1276. Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 3. Continuing the thought, the author of Hebrews says, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? That's a great question. It was declared, the salvation was declared at first by the Lord. Now notice there's a time frame here. There's a chronology that he's setting up. It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. Those who heard would have been who? The disciples and the apostles. Those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Now, all I want to point out there is the assumption of the writer of Hebrews is that this is what has happened. Notice he doesn't say this is still going on. He says when everything changed, when Jesus came, when he was crucified, when he resurrected, when he ascended into heaven, when the Holy Spirit fell at Pentecost, when the church was founded, all of that was accompanied by signs and wonders, but he speaks of it in the past tense. That doesn't seem to be a mistake. And the way God did all of this was primarily through the work of the apostles. So, for example, look on the screen for 2 Corinthians chapter 12, because these are the signs of an apostle. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you, Paul says, with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. That's what it looks like for an apostle to do his work. And it was specific to the time frame of the founding of the church. And so turn with me to the book of Ephesians chapter 2, and you'll see what probably is the core passage that explains all of this. Ephesians chapter 2, again, Pew Bible, page 1242. Turn with me there to Ephesians chapter 2, and there are several verses I want you to see here. In Ephesians chapter 2, Begin in verse 19. We're doing injustice to all of these passages by not giving attention to context, but we're not violating the context in any of them. In Ephesians 2, look in verse 19. There the word says this, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. That verse in and of itself says that when God was doing this new work, when Jesus came, when Jesus brought the gospel, when Jesus accomplished the gospel through his death, resurrection, and ascension, when all of this was done, the message was predicated, the structure, as it were, of the church was built upon the foundation of these special servants, apostles and prophets. And then he goes on to describe what the church ought to look like. Verse 21, in whom the whole structure being joined together joins into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together. There it is, built together, edified. You're being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And if you went into chapter 3, I'm not going to do it right now. But you go into chapter 3, you find that Paul basically says the reason this happened was as a sign that times have changed. It was a sign that now Gentiles and Jews are together in the church. That was such a drastic change. It wasn't like anybody could come up and say, oh, and by the way, you know, I follow Jesus and my idea about the church is we're going to include Gentiles. That would have never happened if the people saying that weren't qualified and proven and credentialed by signs and wonders 
that indeed they were speaking the word of God. And so this is what was happening. By the way, nearly everybody's a cessationist about the apostles. Cessationism means that the supernatural apostolic gifts, the miraculous gifts, are no longer normative in the church. That's what cessationism, that that term, that's what that means. It's a technical term. You don't need to worry about it. But my suggestion to you is nearly all people are functional cessationists when it comes to apostles. There are no more apostles. Oh, I know there are some church systems that use the term, and there's some churches that would deny that. But to be an apostle, you had to see the resurrected Lord. Or you had to be an associate. After seeing the resurrected Lord, you had to be an associate of the original apostles. And there's no way to seek that gift anymore because Jesus' physical body is no longer here. Finally, let me just show you on the screen Jude 3. And I can't make too much of this, but combined with everything else we've seen, it says in Jude 3, Beloved, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was, notice what it says, once for all delivered to the saints. Jude is writing toward the end of the first century. And he's not suggesting the faith is still being delivered. There's still information coming. He says this faith was once for all delivered This leads us to believe that there is no further revelation. And the work of the apostles and the prophets and translated tongues, these were all functions of divine revelation. And so what we find is this. All of these apostolic gifts, the signs, the wonders, the revealing of the revelation, they verified the word of God. And what we find in history, indeed, is that after the church there was a increase of claims about miracles and then they almost disappear because the word of God was disseminated and spread and there was no longer any expectation that God would be speaking through signs and wonders because now the recognition was God speaks through his word. I've told you over the last couple weeks, I want to repeat this morning. I don't think we recognize how significant this was. A few years ago, Christy and I, by virtue of the church that I served, we were invited to a donor event from uh, one of the Bible translation societies. And it was in a fancy restaurant they, or hotel. They, they treated us. It was a pretty impressive event. I think they thought we were gonna get, they were going to get a whole lot of money out of us. As part of the event, they said, we want to give you a gift. Now, we don't want you to open it yet, but, but we've given you Bibles. We're all about Bible translation, so we've given you a Bible, and they're there at your table, but don't open them yet. And so we saw these Bibles, they thin, thin line Bibles. I'm, I really preferred that, especially at the time when my eyesight was better. And so I'm looking at that Bible, I'm thinking, this is going to be cool. We're going home with new Bibles. It's a pretty nice cover and everything. And then they said, now, take your Bible and open it to the book of Ephesians. And we opened up the Bible, and every page was blank. And their point was, that's the way it is with some language groups. If they had a Bible, it would be blank, because no one has translated the Bible. But when I saw that, I thought about, that's what it was like for the early church. They didn't have Bibles like we do. When they came to Bible study... All they had was their knowledge of the Old Testament and then what is called in the New Testament the apostles' teaching, or some of our translations say the apostles' doctrine. That's the reason those apostolic gifts that dispensed content were so important 
Because otherwise, this is what they were left with. Empty pages. Come take a look at it after the service. I don't know why you need to see it, but it's just interesting to take a look at it. Every page is empty. (laughs) The importance of God's Word. So, essentially what I'm suggesting, our position, our understanding is, is that these apostolic miraculous gifts are no longer normative. And they were probably, to some degree, normative in the apostolic age. Now let me answer some questions for you. I'm going to move on quickly. And by the way, I know this is one of these sermons that leaves you with more questions than it answers. And I'm cool with that. It's job security for me, all right? The first first question is this. Is God able to still give men and women these gifts? Yes, obviously. God is able. God is God. Is God required to still give men and women these gifts? The answer to that is no. You say, well, he he gave them in the New Testament time. There are plenty of things in the New Testament time that even in the New Testament time that God's no longer doing. In our men's Bible study, we were looking at Matthew 10, where Jesus said, now don't go to the Gentiles. Remember, he commissioned during his earthly ministry, commissioned his disciples. He said, don't go, but don't go to the Gentiles. That changed. And so God, who is God, who is sovereign, is allowed to change. So he's not required to give these miraculous gifts today. But of course, the primary question, is God willing to still give men and women these gifts? And here's my answer to that. Is God willing to still give men and women these gifts? Perhaps in some circumstances, but only when there is evidence that leads us to the conclusion that it's the same kind of circumstance as the apostolic church. I don't have any problem with the powerful work of the Holy Spirit, even in spiritual gifts, in places where the gospel is advancing into darkness, in a place where, like we have just talked about, there's no word of God readily available. God is able to do what he chooses to do. But what we find as the New Testament goes along, what we find in history as well, is that God is pleased to work in the church as we have the Word of God, he's pleased to work in what we called last week and what the Puritans called the ordinary means of grace. So some of you are wondering, should we pray for miracles? Yes. God is still the God of miracles. I've told you many times before, if one of my grandkids contracts cancer, I'm going to be praying with diligence for a miracle, for God to change the physical existence of that disease. That would be changing the rules of nature. I have prayed that kind of prayer for some of you. And we continue to do so. So we should pray with eagerness according to God's will. But what we should seek is we should seek the edifying gifts of the Spirit that function through the ordinary means of grace. Now, if that's the case, how do we do that? And that's the rest of the message for the next few minutes. In seeking and using your grace gifts... I think we have, right here in this unusual text in 1 Peter, I think we have some hints on how to go about that. So let me show those to you. The first is this. In seeking and using your grace gifts, do so with reason. Do so with reason. In other words, not in mania. Not in foolishness. The Bible says in 1 Peter 4 verse 7, be self-controlled and sober-minded. Now we've seen this over and over in 1 Corinthians. 
There's a concern for content. There's a concern for reason. There's an acknowledgement of the, the need for our minds to be renewed. Not just our emotions, but our minds. And so instead of seeking and searching for gifts driven by emotion, seek and search for gifts and use those gifts based on reason, not emotion. Secondly, in seeking and using your grace gifts, do so not just with reason, but do so also with prayer. Do so with prayer. Again, you see it in the text. You do this, you are self-controlled and you are sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. So there's the assumption here in the Word of God that we are living our lives characterized by prayer. God is not hiding your spiritual gift. God doesn't play tricks with us. He's not hiding your grace gift. It's meant for you to use it to the good of others. But the Bible says we have not because we ask not. And by the way, this just goes back to that previous point, uh, trusting in the kind providence of God. God has equipped all of us with natural abilities and with grace gifts. And the reason we have those abilities and those gifts is to serve others. And so pray about that. If I were to corner you, I won't do this. If I were to corner you after the church and said, what do you believe your grace gifts to be? If you have no idea, start praying about that. Seek and use your grace gifts with reason, with prayer, but also, in verse 8, with love. It says in verse 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins, above all. And this shouldn't surprise us, because in 1 Corinthians, in the middle of all of this conflict and this discussion about grace gifts, what does Paul stop and talk about? The priority of love, chapter 13. That anything else apart from love is useless. And so you should seek and you should use your grace gifts characterized by love. And by the way, the reason that's important is because the longer you're around people, the messier they are. The more you get to know people, the more they'll disappoint you. This is the nature of friction. If, if, if you isolate yourself, you could get along with pretty much everybody. But if you get into other people's lives, they're going to do things, they're going to say things, they're going to act in ways that disappoint you, that let you down. But when you love them, you're more concerned about their good than your own feelings or your own offense or your own comfort. So we use our grace gifts motivated by love. That's been a fundamental message from 1 Corinthians, without doubt. Four, in seeking and using your grace gifts, do so with reason, with prayer, with love, and also with sacrifice. With sacrifice. In verse 9, show hospitality to one another. Now, you know that in the ancient world, this was so important. Generally speaking, inns where they existed were places of desperate immorality. And in the ancient world, the Christians, as they would travel, and particularly once they'd been persecuted, they were pushed away from their homes, many of them. And there was all of this itinerant ministry that even Paul was involved in. A core necessity was that Christians would show hospitality to one another. But you know what happens when you show hospitality? You are inconvenienced. You are inconvenienced. Unless you have some massive estate in Montecito where you can have guests and you never see them, you have servants that care for them. Anybody? Nope. 
If you're going to show hospitality, if you're going to welcome someone into your home, particularly welcome a stranger into your home, you are by definition, you are sacrificing. And it takes sacrifice to use your spiritual gifts. Because the very point is, you are using your energy, empowered by the Holy Spirit, but nevertheless, you're using your time, you're using your resources to bless and serve others. There's a level of sacrifice there. Now, I don't know if you've thought about it, but in this list, if you look at it, this is just basically another way of saying, you need to follow Jesus. Don't worry so much about your spiritual gift. Just follow Jesus. Follow Jesus with having your mind renewed, with reason. Follow Jesus by living a life of prayer. Follow Jesus by loving other people. Follow Jesus by sacrificing when you need to sacrifice. That's what it looks like to follow Jesus. And so you should look for needs and opportunities to serve and to sacrifice. And what you'll find is that the needs that you recognize will particularly be needs that speak to your spiritual gift, that your spiritual gift resonates with. So look for needs. And then at the same time, evaluate the fruit. If you consistently think you have this spiritual gift and you try to use it and you try to use it and you try to use it and the door continues to be slammed shut and you never see any fruit, it's very likely that you have misplaced your emphasis on what your gifting is. And then you can also listen for confirmation. Because other people in your life, particularly your spiritual leaders, but other people that are living life with you, they can confirm or they can challenge whether you really have a particular gift. By the way, there's one more. Seek and use your grace gift with reason, with prayer, with love, with sacrifice, and finally, do so with humility. He adds a phrase at the end of verse 9 that none of us want to think about. You see what it says? Show hospitality one another. What's it say? Without grumbling. That takes humility. And perhaps there's a reminder here about humility in the way we deal with this whole issue. I am firmly convinced that this understanding, especially of the apostolic miraculous gifts, is consistent with what we see in the New Testament. But I hold that position with a level of humility. And I love other believers who see these things differently, who believe that God's still giving gifts of prophecy, some who believe that there's some kind of prayer language. And I don't see that in Scripture. But you know what? No one's made me the determiner of all doctrine. And so I hold this position with humility, as we should all of our positions, especially our positions for which there is some disagreement or some question. Now, I don't believe you have to have any humility when you are asserting that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I don't believe you have to have any humility when you say with boldness that all of us are lost apart from the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And by the way, that's a message for every one of us today. If you're here and you've never put your hope and faith in Jesus Christ, I set aside my humility and I boldly, on the basis of the Word of God, I say that you are under the judgment of God. And you cannot escape God's judgment unless you acknowledge and repent of your sins and put your hope and faith in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Finally, our edifying grace gifts serve an ultimate purpose. They serve an ultimate purpose, and that is the eternal glory of our good God. That's the ultimate purpose. Do you see it in verse 11? 
You do these things. You, do the, you practice your speaking gift. You practice your serving gift. Why? In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And at the very least, there's an implication that as you use your speaking gift, especially those of us who have speaking gifts, as you use your serving gift, the glory is not to you. The glory is to God the eternal glory of our good God. And if you think about it, that's pretty miraculous. God is showing up in your neighborhood this week. God is showing up in your office this week. God is showing up on campus this week. And the way He shows up is through your life, filled with the Holy Spirit, equipped with grace gifts, in order to bless and serve others, and especially in the life of the local church as we represent the body of Christ in this community. That's God showing up. When do we get to do this stuff? Every day. We do this stuff every day with every life we touch, especially through the local church. This is the stuff that God designed. Our demonstrated real-life love for Him and love for one another, even when we disagree, or even when we let one another down. This is the grace of God. Why? Why is it so powerful? Because we set ourselves aside, and we give ourselves to the ultimate purpose of our lives, which is the eternal glory of our good God. Let's pray together. Father, These issues that we've addressed this morning sometimes are confusing, sometimes they sound technical, and yet how important it is that we recognize, how important it is that we not miss anything you have for us, and how important is it that we utilize the tools you've given us through your Holy Spirit for those purposes that they were designed for. So Father, help each and every one of us who are your followers to seek after and then to use our grace gifts in ways that build up and bless others. And if there are any here who have not received grace gifts because they've not received the Holy Spirit, because they've not ever humbled themselves and trusted in Jesus as Lord and Savior, I pray that through this unusual message that seems in some way to sidestep those issues that really This is the foundation of everything we believe, that Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone and that his life and his work and his death and resurrection and his coming kingdom, they are the foundation of everything we believe. And I pray, Lord, for any who are here who have never yielded to that glorious message that you would, through your Holy Spirit, give them gifts, grace gifts indeed, of faith and repentance today. And Father, may we be your church. Even as we've seen these young people profess their faith in baptism, we are encouraged about the future. The future of the church church at large, but even the future of our church, that you continue to bless and equip us. May you be pleased to demonstrate your glory through regular, ordinary people like us. What a glorious thing that is. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.